Hello, welcome to the CityWire Funds Fanatic podcast. My name is Gavin Lumsden and today my guest is Alex Wright, manager of the Fidelity Special Values Investment Trust and the Fidelity Special Situations Fund, which principally invests in the UK in both small and larger companies. Alex, thanks for joining me. Uh, due to train strikes, you can't be in this studio with me, but um, you're talking from your home in Essex, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, and, and I guess as we've done many times, unfortunately, over the last couple of years, I'm working from home today. Uh, but it is nice to see I'm, I'm generally in the office sort of three or four days a week uh, under Fantastic. normal circumstances. And I was interested to see from a, a, a video on the on uh, the Fidelity website that when you're not working, uh, you, you like to, and you're at home, you like to relax in the garden. Is that, uh, is, is that the case? Yeah, so I'm, well, I wouldn't describe myself as a keen gardener because I don't really get the time to do so, but um, it's something I very much enjoy. And obviously living a bit out of town, we've got the opportunity to have a decent amount of open space. Now, that sounds great. Well, listen, um, let's focus on your uh, core job. And uh, you've run Fidelity Special Values uh, Trust for uh, over a decade. And um, so it, it's, it's good to hear from you because we're talking against a backdrop clearly of heightened economic and political uncertainty. But um, over the 10 years to the end of August, um, that your trust has delivered a total return of 209% to, to, to shareholders, and that's way ahead of the 93% from um, the FTSE all share. So I'm wondering, uh, what message or lessons does its strong performance against the UK stock market and, and against its sector and rivals um, you know, carry for investors uh, in these uncertain times? Yeah, so it's, it's obviously a great milestone to have gone through the 10-year anniversary on the trust. And I suppose when you look back, a lot of very unexpected things have happened during that 10 years, be they sort of the Brexit vote, Donald Trump getting elected, the COVID pandemic and shutdowns. Uh, and clearly, I wouldn't have predicted any of those back in 2012 when we took on the, the trust. So I think volatile times is something we very much lived with during this period and unexpected events. And I think actually, the sort of the opportunity that, that, that those throw up um, often actually leads to great returns. So while well, you may have, you've seen several significant drawdowns in the trust and markets during that period, they've all in, in retrospect turned out to be great buying opportunities that have allowed us to pick up stock specific stories that, that people have overlooked in the, the sort of more general panic. Um, and so I think investors, certainly when they have a three to five year horizon, which I think investors in the trust should do, and, and that's the horizon we very much take, see the, these opportunities um, for, for performance and, and not panic when we see the, the volatility, be it geopolitical or, or economic. Yeah, I mean, investors have certainly had to put up with a lot, as you say, in the, in the, in the past decade. Do you think investors broadly have got better at kind of you know, resisting the urge to, to panic sell and get out at the bottom? Unfortunately, no, I don't think that that's the case. And, and if anything, there's some factors which have grown over the last 10 years in terms of sort of Pro, uh, programmatic trading and CTA trading, hedge fund trading, a lot of that is very momentum driven. So actually, if anything, it reinforces some of those traditional biases of, of um, human investors. And so the, the, the volatility of markets sort of on a macro level has got bigger. So while you could say some of maybe these algorithm computers um, on a micro level, maybe iron out sort of intra-sector or, or stock-specific sort of news. On a macro level, I think they actually magnify it. So that opportunity to, to go against the market has actually got greater over the last 10 years, not, not less. 
but you do have to hold your nerve, it sounds. Um, we, we should clarify before we go much further, what is the difference? Is there any difference between uh, the Special Values Investment Trust and Special Situations Fund? So the funds are very similar. They're about 95% the same. Uh, and the key difference is a slightly higher average level of gearing for, for special values. So both funds have the ability to gear, but the typical gearing limit, uh, t- typical gearing level on special values be about 10%, whereas it'd be more like sort of 3 to, to 4% on, on special situations. And we tend to invest that extra sort of 5 to 7% of the fund in some more micro cap names. So both funds have quite a strong mid and small cap bias. Indeed, 60% of both funds are a sub 5 billion, which is where we sort of do the cutoff between sort of large and mid and small. Um, but we, we have a, um, a bucket of the fund about 5% in sort of more micro cap sub 200 million pound names in special values. I see. So the investment trust can yeah, do even more in those um, smaller companies. Um, actually, that's interesting because you, you made your name as a fund manager with um, the Fidelity UK Smaller Companies Fund, which uh, a couple of years ago you passed to your co-manager, Jonathan Winton. But I'm wondering from what you're saying, you know, uh, in your heart, are you still essentially a, a small cap stock picker? So definitely, I enjoy the, the small cap part of the market. And it, it's obviously just over the majority of the fund. So 60% of the fund. But I think um, there's opportunities right across the market cap spectrum. So a lot of the, the names that I am really excited about, the, the banking names, the life insurance names, they tend to only really exist in the large cap part of the, the market. So the, I, I think there is, if you just look at one part of the market, you obviously reduce your, your total opportunity set. So I, I like the fact we have flexibility across everything in, in the UK market and obviously up to 20% um, overseas as well. Yeah. Now, um, yeah, looking forward, um, there's a consensus, it would seem, that the next 10 years uh, will be very different because of high inflation and interest rates. Uh, do you agree we've entered a new era? And what are the implications uh, that investors should consider? So it's it's really difficult, as I guess we go back to the initial question, sort of you, you wouldn't have predicted what was going to happen over the last 10 years, 10 years ago. And so it's extremely difficult to make a prediction for the next 10 years at this point. I think what you do have to look back, though, is actually if you look at long term history, the last 10 years of incredibly low interest rates, incredibly low inflation, very low and volatile economic growth. That's actually quite an aberration over history that that I can't I don't believe there's been any. It's pretty much been a 15-year period of that. You've seen short periods of that historically, but never a 15-year period before. And obviously, you've never seen the the degree of sort of unconventional monetary policy like quantitative easing um, used either. So I think the next 10 years, it's difficult to say exactly how it will look, but I think it's extremely unlikely to look like the, the last period because that was an extremely unusual period. So normally... If you look back at all the academic literature uh, and long-term market returns, value outperforms, but because uh, you generally see real discount rates, um, um, reversion to to mean, uh, and you don't see these unusual um, conditions. So I think actually the next 10 years is likely to be a lot better for value versus growth than it it has been. So maybe we just uh, say a a, a word about value. So your investment approach is a value style. You're buying uh, companies when they're cheap and out of favour, but obviously looking for companies that you think are good that will recover. Uh, That's that's it, isn't it? 
Yeah, so I'd sort of, uh, it's, it's a, we class it a value contrarian a, approach. So effectively looking at things other people aren't looking at. And the reason uh, we do that, and the reason that has worked really well over the fund's lifetime from, from 1979, is that effectively, if you buy something that you think is good, but most people think it isn't, effectively, if you're wrong, you don't lose that much money because everyone thought the company wasn't great anyway. But if actually it turns out you're right, a lot more people come round to your point of view and they look to, to buy the stock and drive up the rating. It's actually exactly the opposite of what happens in a growth stock. Like if you buy a stock that everyone thinks is great um, and it turns out to be great, well, that's what the stock was already priced for. But if you're wrong, you lose a lot of money on the downside. So that's why I like being a, a value investor because it, it skews your risk reward. Um, you don't have to have a really high batting average and get it right every time because when you get it right, the, the returns are much better than, than when you get it wrong. Um, yeah. There's a lot of sort of, you know, kind of common sense sort of wrapped up in that uh, definition. But, um, you know, value investing has had a difficult time. I mean, it's coming good uh, since the pandemic, perhaps. But um, and although, you, you know, your 10 year performance shows that it's worked. Yeah. But I just wondered, what, what have you do you think you've done different maybe from other value style fund managers? Because, you know, quite a few of them got carried out, basically, are no longer running funds because you know, performance um, wasn't good enough in that growth strong growth era um what were you doing i mean you've had difficult years there's no there's no denying that but what have you done that's enabled you to um avoid that kind of bad, really bad underperformance i think it's about um the, the the sort of the the stock picking ability of the fund so while we pick in that same value pool that you're right gavin has, has underperformed the market um over the the 10 year period that we've been on the fund, we don't have to buy every stock in that value pool. So we're, we're highly selective in, in what we own. Um, and what we've done a lot of avoiding is, is yeah, value traps that have bad balance sheets. So effectively, we want to think about what happens if we get it wrong. The good news is, is there isn't generally much valuation downside if we get it wrong. But if the balance sheet of the company we've bought um, is bad and there's debt on the balance sheet and the earnings misc, that's where you can lose an awful lot of money. So effectively, we're always trying to minimize the chance of permanent capital loss. And the easiest way to get permanent capital loss is to have too much debt. Um, and so definitely versus other value funds, we run lower levels on average of debt within our companies. And, and therefore, we have had failures. Uh, we haven't lost a lot of money, whereas that has tripped up some of my peers. I see. Well, that is interesting because I was going to ask you because you're saying, you know, this era of uh, higher interest rates, higher inflation, you know, is is um, one that's conducive to the style. But I was going to the to value style. But, uh, you know, with government bonds indicating interest rates should be around 4 percent, you know, I was wondering you know, in terms of, you know, the increased finance costs for some of those companies um, that could what impact that would be having on those kind of companies you're buying, but you're deliberately buying ones that aren't too indebted. Yeah, so to be honest, the, the reason for, for not um, having the debt companies as we talk about is risk. Um, but obviously, the, in this kind of environment where interest rates are rising, having higher levels of, of debt is also bad for your earnings. And then obviously, um, high levels of interest rate is bad for valuations as well. So, So I think... Having a value fund which has a low PE, um, uh, lower than the market, and that has lower debt is a is an ideal place to to be um, because you don't get that valuation risk. 
um, all that um, uh, earnings risk as well. Yeah. Now, the um, the UK market, stock market, has been uh, comparatively resilient this year. I, I think down, not, notwithstanding the um, falls after the, the recent budget, um, down about 8% um, for the year by early October. So, does that mean UK equities are less of a bargain compared to their international counterparts? So, so UK equities started the year a lot cheaper than their, their international peers. So I, I think you've got to bear that in mind. And then also you've got to think about the big currency moves we've had this year as well. So, so actually 80% of the earnings of the UK market don't come from the pound. They come from other currencies. And, and with the pound down sort of 15 to 20% versus the dollar, if you look at the performance of the UK market in dollar terms, it, it's actually pretty similar to other markets. So the UK's remained... Um, as cheap as it was at the, the start of the year. So that bargain status that we've been talking about for a while definitely hasn't hasn't gone away. Okay. And are you structuring uh, the portfolios or, or positioning them in a different way, you know, with this sort of new era idea in mind? No. So, uh, again, while I think that the next 10 years will almost certainly look different from the last 10 exactly how it will look i think is difficult and, and also i would be surprised to see inflation at the kind of levels the sort of 10 percent levels we're seeing on average for the next 10 years and indeed markets are not predicting that they're predicting actually inflation to come back down reasonably quickly to the two to three percent range um so the environment it's going to be difficult to tell exactly what it's looked like. So actually, we're, we're running the fund as we have before, sort of where are the attractive value opportunities, making sure we're diversified across sectors um, and geographies. Um, we've got a lot of names in the fund, 100 individual names. So lots of individual shots on goal in terms of the, the individual change stories so that different stocks will work better in different economic environments. But we always have the individual stories that should work irrespective of what's going on in the, the macro economy. Uh, and that's very much how we continue to run the fund. Okay. And uh, did the sell-off after the not-so-mini budget provide you with buying opportunities? There was a lot of volatility, clearly. Yeah. So, so again, the fund generally has a sort of three-year holding period. So we don't change dramatically um, when the, the market um, falls. But at the margin, it does tend to throw up more opportunities so we tend to have a higher level of gearing after the market's fallen and then lower that gearing uh, again as as stocks do well and, and and we sort of sell down the winners so both funds have had um quite low levels of, of leverage compared to history um this year and um, partly because we've had a lot of takeovers in the fund uh, and so we've we, we sold those as those have come through and um, but also i think because of the uncertainty in the market we've been keen to to, to have sort of dry powder to invest. And we did indeed sort of over the last couple of weeks increase the gearing by about 2%. And so we were about um, 4% geared, we're about 6% geared today. Um, and, and actually most of that has gone either to, into the life insurance sector or also a slight increase in the oil weight in, in the fund. Uh, I was quite surprised by how much the oil price had come off recently and, and some of the oil equities had come off. So we, we added to those uh, over the last couple of weeks. Okay. Um, on the Interesting you mentioned the, the, the life insurers. Um, you know, in the aftermath of the budget, you know, there's big falls in government bonds and, um, you know, it forced an intervention by the Bank of England to, to buy the long-dated bonds 
to uh, support um, pension funds that were feeling the strain of that, that, that fall. Um, have you seen any signs of uh, forced selling by pension funds in, in the UK stock market? So it's very difficult to say who, because obviously you don't get visibility on who is selling. So the markets did sell off, and I would say sold off in a reasonably indiscriminate way. Um, but exactly what was triggering that and who was triggering that is really tough to say. Um, I think it's clear that um, pension funds, uh, because of the movements in the LDI schemes, have had to liquidate uh, certain assets. And some of those will have liquidated equities, but just how significant an effect that's had on markets is, is very difficult to say. Okay. Um, thinking of the economy, in your view, how, how stressed is the, the UK consumer? How bad could the recession or, or downtown, downturn be? So it's, it's a very unusual time in terms of the consumer, because if you, um, you look at consumer confidence levels, they're at incredibly low levels. So the lowest since the survey began in the, the early 80s, so worse than we were seeing in the global financial crisis. Um, but when you actually look at the consumer balance sheet and cash flow, clearly the, the cash flow isn't as good as it was 12 months ago. But 12 months ago, it was an all-time high. The consumer n- never had a, a, a better sort of growth in real income coming out of COVID and also had significant excess savings. So the the, the movement is definitely negative, but from a very good level. Um, so I wouldn't say today that on average, that the consumer is extremely stressed uh, because unemployment is still at, at record levels. Um, and also a lot of the increases in energy costs, while, while clearly cost of petrol that the pump's gone up, the government's obviously then capped energy bills at um, a higher level, but not a, a much higher level than, than history. Uh, and lots of people are on two, three or five year fixed rate mortgages. So that will be an extra cost for people over time, but not immediately today. So I would say everyone sees a negative picture for the consumer, but on the ground, actually, uh, expenditure still at decent levels. So we do have some UK consumer plays, uh, and trading on the ground is is largely pretty flat uh, for most of those businesses, not falling off a cliff at all. Okay. Um, well, yeah. That well, it brings us on to your the positions in banks, which uh, you've added to like the likes of Barclays and NatWest. Are those some of the stocks you've been adding to? recently so we've had um we've got a lot of the fund in banks and indeed it's the largest total sector position for the the fund as a whole about 15 percent of the the fund um and the biggest two positions of those are natwest and allied irish bank those have been quite long-standing positions and more recently we have uh, both added to those slightly but also significantly added to barclays so that that is now the, the third biggest position and I think the, the key reason why banks look more attractive now um, is the level of interest rates. So again, through the last decade where interest rates have been very, very low, net interest margins for the banks have been very um, pressured uh, because effectively they have, uh, particularly banks that have a lot of current account business because traditionally current accounts don't pay interest um, therefore they're a very low cost of funding but when interest rates are zero anyway you have all the costs of running those current accounts without really any of the benefit of that low cost funding so you've had very low returns the the increase in interest rates we've seen is really quite transformational for the the banks so indeed profits for natwest uh, uh, have every potential to be double the the level next year that they were this year 
uh, so huge moves in in profitability um and that also gives the banks a very big buffer to deal with any economic downturn because clearly that the very good um payment levels that consumers have have been doing and firms have been um doing on their loans over the last couple of years in a recession you are going to see that those payments get worse but there's a huge buffer to um, absorb those now and just for example that our expectations for pre-provision profits for NatWest next year are 70 percent higher than they were in 2019 so effectively able to deal with a, a recession much better than they have done in the past yeah and, and thinking of the government's uh you know, sort of new government's plan to to minimise or um, ameliorate that that downturn. Um, yeah, what what should the government do if it wants to boost uh, UK economic growth to two and a half percent a year? Are investment zones and lower taxes the the right way to go? So so clearly, uh, if you look at the economic textbooks, like deregulation should be good for growth. The issue is is deregulation is hard and takes time. So the problem is is the the government only has a couple of years till the next elections. They want to try and do things that uh, take effect quickly. And it's really quite difficult to enact things quickly. And there's a lot of vested interest. So so clearly, any degree of deregulation does help um, over the long term. Clearly, um, lower taxes also help with economic growth. Um, but obviously, that you need to balance the books as well. Higher levels of government debt are generally detrimental to, to growth. So it's it's a very tricky mix for the government. Uh, everyone wants to boost economic growth. It, it's actually, in reality, really hard to do. Yeah, okay, um, of course. Well, let's look at uh, some of your um, holdings, other holdings. Um, Serco is your top position. Um, that's done done very well. Um, is it in a, gonna continue to be in a good position if the government looks to cut spending or outsource more services? Is that part of the, the thesis there? So I think it's interesting how you, you talk about Circo there, because I think you probably just talked about it, how the average investor still views it as a primarily sort of UK based outsourcing business. But the UK is actually only about a third of profits and two thirds of profits come from overseas now. And that's the real transformation that you've seen with the, the business under Rupert Soames. Not only did they fix the operational issues they had with some of their UK contracts, and, and clearly the profitability on some of those was very poor. But they've done a great job of winning more work, particularly in the US, which clearly is a much bigger market than the UK, but also a much less outsourced market. So um, surprisingly, given obviously the free market economics of the US, much less of government activity in the US is outsourced as a percentage than in the UK. So it's a, a market that has a strong organic growth. Uh, and the case also in Australia with Serco have a big business. So actually what really matters for Serco is is how much the US government budget grows by and what percentage it is outsourced. Uh, and that looks like it's on a, a structural growth trend, whereas the company's sort of price like it's a sort of no growth um, UK business on about 12 times earnings. So that's where the big opportunity is here today, that the first stage of the, the turnaround was really delivered under the old CEO, Rupert Soames, who's, who's recently renounced his retirement, um, at fixing the, the UK, but the, the future uh, story is all about that international growth. Ah, interesting. Okay. And could you also update me on Imperial Brands? Um, so the tobacco group uh, is a top 10 uh, holding. And about a year ago, I, I, you were concerned about uh, its relative lack of progress in smokeless products compared to uh, rival BAT. Um, but the position is back to um, 
3.7% on according to the fact sheet. So um, from from 2% a year ago. So are you less concerned or you know, what's the story there? So the, the reason I cut the stock back actually wasn't about its lack of progress. It was more about the um, the risk from the ICOS product taking off in Europe, which is Philip Morris's um, heat, heated tobacco product. Because I think um, effectively that product, if, if consumers get on it, there tends to be a reasonable stickiness of those um, consumers because it's quite a different experience to um, smoking or vaping. Um, uh, and that's a product that um, Imperial have under development and they have in two markets, but is, is very nascent for them. Um, and, I, and I was concerned that that was a risk that would make um, tobacco markets fall off quicker as people moved to next generation technology more quickly. Actually, what's happened um, since then is that product has stopped gaining market share. Um, and there's two reasons for that. First of all, uh, there's a computer chip in the device, and, and we know that there's a shortage of those computer chips, and this is quite a low um, ASP use of the computer chip compared to things like sort of cars or, or um, computers. So actually, they just haven't been able to roll out the product as quickly. And again, that allows Imperial, therefore, to catch up with the development of their product. And then also, particularly in Germany, which is a big market for Imperial and also something where um, ICOS was gaining market share, um, Germany has put excise tax onto heat not burn products at an equivalent level to um, smoking. So it's made it a lot more expensive to use the heat not burn product. Um, and therefore, that has also stemmed the market share losses. So uh, uh, those are the two key things that have happened that gave me more confidence uh, for Imperial that allows them to have time to catch up and, and generate um, and, and effectively sort of copy the, the, the leading uh, marketeers like VAT and, and PMI that those products can be developed over time and as a, a number four player that's generally what um, a fast follower strategy works in FMTG very much like the, the CEO did at Bacardi previously so as long as that doesn't happen quickly and, and you effectively get consumers in, entrenched on your product, um, I think Imperial can do well over time in next generation as well as anybody else. And the valuation is still very low. Uh, and clearly it's a, a mainly a um, non-UK earning business. The UK is uh, about 15 to 20% of the business. So again, that's been a big boost to, to earnings over the last year. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, unexpected um, uh, facet of the uh, global chip shortage. I didn't know that. Um, turning to uh, Contour Global, another top um, holding um, energy company. I know very little about this. So, w What's more interesting about Contour Global than, say, Shell or, or BP? So Contour Global's um, a utility business. So it's much more similar to, um, say, an SSE, a Drax, uh, or parts of Centrica than it is to a, an oil company. Um, and the thing that really attracted me here is that that this business is about half and half renewable thermal um, and it's very, and it's contracted revenue. So there's no gas price um, risk. Uh, you effectively get a, a fixed price contract for 10 to 15 years for your um, electricity output. Uh, and the on the thermal side, it's just a, a pass through cost um, for, for the end customer. So a, a, a business with a lot of safety to its outcomes and trading at a massive discount to some of the renewable companies that have similar type of contracts. And I think the issue is, is that people were more interested in renewable pure plays than they were in mixed utilities. And they were effectively pricing the whole business at a thermal valuation, despite half of it being um, renewable. 
Um, and to me, it, I thought that was a sort of unsustainable position. So the company were increasingly what they were doing is actually recycling their assets. So selling their, their renewable assets at sort of 15 times EBITDA and buying new thermal ones at about eight. So the returns on capital of doing that were really good. And then ultimately what's happened is that private equity have bid um, for the company. And I suspect what they will do is actually split the whole company in two. So they'll they'll, they'll invest on the um, renewable side and grow a, a big renewables company on one side. And then they'll grow a thermal company on the other side uh, and maybe even look to, to relist either of the, the two in future. I see. Yeah, that uh, sounds like a would be sensible. What um, are you happy with the price? Because actually, I suppose it's a it's a kind of a, a saving grace of your approach is that you're buying cheap companies. If if other investors don't follow you, and um, they can sometimes stay cheap, but then um, uh, companies don't stay cheap forever, and uh, bids and M and A come along to 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 help save the day as far as you're concerned. Yeah. So I think one facet of fundamentals being strong for UK companies, but valuations staying cheap has just been the, the amount of M&A activity. And actually sort of since sort of the autumn of 2020, I think we've had uh, about 12 takeover bids in the fund now. So it's there's an unprecedented level. Um, and some of them have been at really high valuations. So Consul Global was a high 30s um, premium, but actually a couple of bids, um, including the more recent RPS one, have been at 70%. Um, premium. So it just shows just how undervalued um, these businesses are compared to, to peers. Um, obviously, sometimes you get more opportunistic bids at, at lower premiums. Uh, and obviously, we don't have to accept those. If you vote against the, the bids and enough people follow you, then they, they can't happen. So that, that happened with PhotoMe. We, we voted against the bid. The founder tried to, to buy out the rest of the company at, at quite a low price, and that failed. Um, Ramsey Healthcare bid for Spire, um, and we were quite public uh, that that was too low a price, uh, and that went away. Um, and then Pearson received a bid uh, just earlier this year, um, we're a smaller shareholder in Pearson, so that was mainly rejected by some of the larger holders there, like Sevian. So I think, yeah, you, you see, I have noted other UK equity managers sort of bemoan the fact that, that companies are taken over. But clearly, if you have a big holding, and particularly we often own 5 or 10% of a company in, in mid or small cap land, you, you have a big say on whether that bid takes place or not. So if we don't see the value there, we, we don't accept offers. Okay, so it, it's not really true that um, then that, that UK companies are you know there's a trend of UK companies getting sold off too cheaply to overseas bidders. It sounds like you know you have to get stuck in sometimes and fight for your um, fight for your stakes, fight for value. But um, but there is a competitive situation here, and uh, yeah, so come at quite uh, big levels. Uh, yeah, obviously that you can see. The UK is a very open equity market, and therefore, if if a company receives a bid, the company is then obviously open to other bids as well. And so, that that is the fair value of of whatever ever people are willing to pay at the time. Or the alternative is is to to just keep the company quoted. So, I think that yeah, the undervaluation of the UK market that sort of somewhere between 30 or 50% cheaper than other markets is being shown in in those takeover premium. So it's been a surprise to me that this kind of activity, especially because 80% of the earnings in the UK don't come from the UK anyway, that that hasn't started to close the, the valuation gap versus particularly the US market or private markets. So a lot of these 
a lot of these deals have been from US corporates or private equity. And private equity would generally take their cue in terms of valuation um, from the US market being the, the biggest global equity market. Yeah. Now, your, 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 your funds are actually quite international, more international than the UK focus might suggest. You've, you've said that uh, you know, a lot of um, UK corporate earnings are coming from overseas, but you can also invest overseas as well, uh, up to 30% uh, outside the UK. Am I right? Um, so I, I think it's up to 20% we can invest overseas right. uh, for, the, for the mandates. And we've got about uh, 13% um, in non-UK markets today. That said, despite that, when, when we look at wh- how much of the earnings come from pounds, um, we're quite overweight compared to the index. So about 35% of the fund's earnings come from pounds compared to 20% for the index. Um, so di- that, that's despite those overseas holdings. And that's because the more mid-small cap part of the market where we really are overrepresented. So we've got 60% there compared to being 20% of the market. That is more domestically focused. So, so actually, I'd sort of say we have a structural bias to the UK compared to the index. OK, well, that, that makes sense. Thanks for clarifying that. But, um, yeah, looking at your top 10, you've got uh, Zanoffi, French pharmaceutical giant. You know, why is that your biggest healthcare holding? Yeah, so uh, particularly in sectors in the UK where the market's very concentrated, we, we, that's where we tend to use some of the, the um, overseas allowance because basically the pharmaceutical sector in the UK is two companies at the large cap and it's Glaxo and Astra. Um, whereas if you look pan-European, there's, there's, there's another sort of six or seven names you can choose from and they largely have the same geographic exposure. The US is the biggest market for everybody um, and, and Europe is, is much smaller uh, and so you're not taking any geographic risk by owning Sanofi. What I think you are getting at Sanofi is just um, a much lower valuation than Astra. And um, we do have a position in Astra, but a, a smaller one because the valuation is is reasonable rather than great. Um, and then Sanofi has a much better balance sheet than Glaxo. Um, and I think also sort of less risk in terms of their um, their, their portfolio and um, plus more growth. Uh, from Dupixent, where we have quite a differentiated view. Dupixent's a large um, drug which which Sanofi launched a couple of years ago and is growing quite strongly. So there's, a, I think, a strong stock-specific story overall in a company with really quite low valuation and a strong balance sheet. Okay, that's uh, interesting. Thank you. Let's finish off uh, going back to the um, uh, the gearing, the borrowing that the uh, Special Values Trust can do. And I'm just, you know... It, what that says about your uh, your, your uh, confidence in the markets and um, an outlook. But you said that the gearing is is uh, currently six percent. I think the fact sheet says ten percent gross. I don't want to get too bogged out in the technical details, but ten percent gross is what. Um, but once you include cash or something, does that bring the ten percent? Yeah. So down the, to 6%? The, the, what I'm saying. So I think it's the the net borrowing is actually ten percent net. So you're you're right. Um, but. Um, what I do is where companies have got a takeover bid like Contour Global, but still in the fund, that, that's basically like cash because that, that's been agreed, that, that, that's signed and sealed, and it's going to get delivered very quickly. So we, we sort of count that out of the, the borrowing. So that's why I'm sort of looking at that 6% overall, which is a bit below what I sort of described as the neutral level of sort of 10%. Uh, and that reflects the fact that, yeah, it is a very uncertain um, economy today. And the market is very skittish and, and therefore we want to have a bit of dry powder if, if, if we see further drawdowns in, in the market.
Okay, but um, so cautious, but how positive are you for uh, for future well, prospective returns? I, I think on a three to five year view, I think there's there's great value in the the portfolio, not just from a relative point of view, but an absolute point of view. So, the portfolio sort of earnings ratio, the price to earnings ratio, is about nine. Uh, the UK market over time average is more like twelve or thirteen. So it's a big valuation discount versus history, and so. Ultimately, I think that that will come through and you'll see good performance because of that, um, but particularly versus other markets. The US would be more like sort of 17 to 18 times earnings. So that, that's the key thing that makes me positive on a medium term view. I think that said, though, versus the real returns the fund's done, we've done 11.5% per annum over the first sort of 10 years. Uh, I think that level of return um it is an exceptionally good return, and I think it will be difficult to achieve that over over time going forwards. Uh, and indeed, I think asset markets as a whole have had a really good run because low interest rates and and, and low inflation are actually a really good cocktail for, for absolute returns for investors. So I think going forward, it's going to be trickier for, for everything. Uh, I think UK value is a place that can really outperform, but I think compared to sort of the returns we've seen from all asset classes, uh, it will be difficult to produce those kind of returns going forward over the, the next 10 years. Okay, Alex. Well, that's uh, thanks for um, yeah, showing your confidence, but also moderating our expectations about uh, what might lie ahead. Um, been great to talk to you. That's all we've got time for, unfortunately, but uh, thanks very much for being with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. 